So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're on part three of a four-part series looking at various conversions in the book of Acts, ones that uh, I just had a particular passion and heart to, to preach on for this. But before we dive into a deacon sermon and an elder sermon, and then we'll start in 1 Samuel. So a lot happens after you finally finish First Peter, right? Uh, funny how that works. So please turn to Acts 17, and we'll read that in just a moment. Uh, and while you're turning there, fried food is scientifically proven to taste delicious. Did you all know that? Yeah, there we go. So whether it's pan-fried or deep-fried food cooked in oil and grease, it just tastes better. Okay? But this method of cooking can also be quite dangerous if done incorrectly. Oil splatters all over the place. It's easily tipped over, and worst of all, it can cause dangerous grease fires. So whether it's Uncle Misguided's first try at a deep-fried turkey, or a grill covered in grease, which apparently this happened recently, I won't name any names, didn't know that when I used this illustration, a grease fire can be especially dangerous. But if you know what you're doing and you remain calm, you can safely put out a grease fire before it does any damage. But why do that when you can panic? And unfortunately, most people's first instinct when they see a flame is to do what? Throw water on it. Yeah, no matter what. There's a flame. Throw water on it. Do you know what happens when you throw water on a grease fire? It spreads it. So instead of putting out the fire, water makes the grease spread everywhere, thus spreading the fire with it everywhere. And as the water hits the boil, or as water hits hot oil, It also evaporates really fast, causing what looks an awful lot like an explosion, further spreading the fire or the hot oil. So don't ever throw water on hot oil, whether it's on fire or not, because you're not going to like the result. And as silly as that is, a lesson can be learned from that example. Sometimes the very thing that you expect to take care of the problem actually makes it far worse. Satan and his kingdom, they desire to destroy the church. Satan wants to see the church wrecked. Well, in scripture and in church history, we see his attempts most clearly during severe times of persecution. And by worldly logic, that seems like a good plan, right? But God's plans for his church are never put on hold because of Satan's attacks. And on the contrary, what we see in the text for this morning is what we're going to see is that God sovereignly uses those attacks from the enemy in order to actually spread his gospel. So Satan thinks he's destroying the church like water on a fire. But what he doesn't realize is that the church is actually a lot more like a grease fire. Water just makes the church and the gospel grow and spread. Really, the message there is that Jesus is ruling and reigning over his creation and his church, and he will see his church completed through his word. So because God is sovereign, you must fight with that word. You must stand fast with that word. So with that introduction, let's look at Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason also has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. A lot happens in those few short verses. So last week, if you were here, we looked at the conversion of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Well, Thessalonica was the next stop on the missionary tour for Paul and Silas. It was around 100 miles away from Philippi, just with several cities in between. So as we look through this passage, we're going to look at this next stop, Thessalonica and Berea. We're going to look at three points to do that. So first, we're going to look at Paul's methodology in evangelism. Second, we're going to look at the response of those who believed the message. And then in the third point, we'll see how the world reacted to Paul's preaching. So the first point, Paul's methodology. Now, Paul was not a novice in evangelism at this point. He had a normal method for sharing the gospel. And we see the same pattern in both Thessalonica and in Berea. So first, Paul would find a synagogue, the place where all the Jews and any God-fearing Gentiles would meet together and to worship. And so as they gathered for worship, they would all be gathered in one spot. It wasn't just Jews. It was Jews and any Gentiles that wanted to worship the true God. Now, if you don't know what a God-fearer is, that is a Gentile who wants to worship Yahweh. So they would come together in these spots. And we see these locations spread across uh, Asia Minor and other parts of the world where the Jews had been scattered and had set up these places for worship. So there were Jews and there were Gentiles, but there was normally a Jewish majority in them. And isn't it interesting that as the gospel spread outside the boundaries of geographic Israel, Paul began in every town by preaching first at the synagogues, first to the Jews at the synagogues. And what we see here is really following the theme of Acts in 1.8. And in Acts 1.8, it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there's also a priority set up in the early church's mission, as stated in Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So there was a priority in the early church for who was to be preached to first. The Jews, as God's chosen people, were to be preached to first. So how fascinating that the Old Testament promise that Israel would be a light to the nations, a light on a hill, are fulfilled in these synagogues scattered throughout the ancient world. So as Gentiles became God-fears and began attending worship, they were brought to one spot all together with the Jews in order for who to show up and preach to them, but Paul with the gospel. And Paul didn't stand on the street corner. He didn't pass out flyers. He went straight to where the people were who needed to hear the message. Now, you may wonder, though, how Paul was allowed to speak at these synagogues. Because if some random stranger walked in the door here and they asked to come up to the pulpit and preach, we would not be okay with that. We'd be like, who is this guy and what is he going to try to tell us from the pulpit? Well, there are a couple things we need to know about this in order for it to make sense. First, if you were a learned Jewish man and you were trained, you were allowed to read and talk about a passage in worship. That was not an abnormal thing. But second, considering Paul, who Paul was, he was extremely well learned. He was trained by the Pharisee Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was one of the most prominent Jewish scholars of the day, and Paul was one of his best pupils. So Gamaliel was very famous, and he was universally respected among the Jews. So whether Paul personally was known by the Jews of this synagogue or not, if they knew who his uh, trainer was, they would be willing to let him speak just because of his mentor. And so it's very likely that Paul was invited up once arriving at the synagogue, that he was invited up to teach. So now, Paul's at the synagogue, and before the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, he is invited to speak. So now the question is, what will he preach to this group of people? Well, Luke, the author of Acts, writes that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And there are two critical parts to that one line. First, Paul reasoned with them. He engaged the minds and the intellects of his audience. If they were to grasp, grasp the message, they must know the truth and use it to think correctly. Because the truth is that we don't think correctly naturally. Therefore, we need to be taught the truth. We need to be taught how to think correctly. There's only one place to go for that truth. And that's the second thing, is that Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. Paul did not use Plato. He didn't use Aristotle. He didn't use Socrates as the basis of his reason. Scripture is a supreme and an errant authority on truth. And because the Bible is the word of God who himself cannot lie, we know Scripture to be true in whatever it says. So Paul uses Scripture with both the Thessalonians in verse 2 and the Bereans in verse 11. So Paul, the great apostle and the author of many books in the New Testament, he relied on the written word of God in order to evangelize and preach. The word, which at this point, what they had written was primarily just the Old Testament. That was the cornerstone of his evangelism. And he didn't use it once and then stop either. For three consecutive weeks, he turned to the scriptures to teach. The word of God is not only our starting point for evangelism, but it is also the ever-present foundation for everything we are to say. And we don't know exactly what passages he used, but we do know the purpose in which Paul turned to all these passages. 
Luke writes that Paul's purpose was to explain and prove that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. His goal was to convince the Jews and Gentiles of his audience that Jesus is the Christ. And notice that he appealed to the minds of his hearers. Evangelism is not just looking for an emotional reaction from people. And that's not to say that all emotional reactions are bad, but the mind must be transformed with the emotions or it will only be a temporary change. The gospel is as simple as saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And yet it is as complex as Paul's comprehensive explanation of the purpose of the Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah. And over those three Sabbath days, Paul likely taught for many hours. He spent many hours using the truths of the scripture to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, people have argued for centuries over the relationship between reason and faith. Many have accused Christians of denying reason in favor of faith. But the truth, straight out of the Bible, is that proper reasoning and understanding can only come through faith. It is only in the transformed minds of believers using the lens of Scripture that we can reason properly. So not only are we enabled to see the world clearly, but we can understand the gospel and we can understand our need of it. So Paul's methodology shows the need for us to understand and utilize the Scripture in our evangelism. We are not charged with appealing primarily to the emotions or the body, but the mind. And the only thing that will awaken the mind is the Scriptures. God's Word is the best tool we have for presenting the truth to a lost world. We proclaim the truth and we allow the Holy Spirit to be at work through the words of God. Because God's speech is powerful, it's living, and it's active. And his word never fails to produce the desired outcome of his will. So what is the outcome? Well, when the word is preached, there's one of two possible results. And we'll examine those in the next two points. So point two, the faithful's reaction. So the first possible outcome of God's word working in someone's heart is that they are awakened and they are brought to life, brought to faith through the word of God. And in both Thessalonica and in Berea, we see many come to faith through Paul's preaching. They were persuaded by the right application of the word that Jesus is the Christ. The Holy Spirit took the word preached and he layered it into their hearts and their minds. So God's word produced life in the Jews, in the Gentiles, in the men, and in the women. And in both locations, Paul's method was the same. But the reception slightly differed between the Thessalonians and Bereans. And I find it interesting that in Thessalonica, we get more details about Paul's methodology than when he was in Berea. Meanwhile, the response of the faithful Thessalonians is very brief, whereas the description of the Bereans' reception of the word is far more detailed. I think it's safe to assume that Paul went about preaching Jesus the same in both places. But I don't think we should necessarily view the reception as the same in both places. There seems to almost have been a a hesitancy or maybe just taking more time among the Thessalonians. Now, many came to believe in the end, but there seems to have been maybe some opposition or some more debate going through. 
Also, once many had believed, there seemed to be less excitement and joy, perhaps, than we see in the Bereans. Now, the Bereans, what did they do? They excitedly searched the scriptures, checking and confirming that everything Paul preached was correct based on the Old Testament. These Christians were like the Bible study champions. They were digging into the word for truth. Now, I'm not doubting the faith of the Thessalonians. From the two letters Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, it's very apparent that these men and women were sincere in their faith. They were an exemplary church, according to Paul's letters to them. But I do find it interesting that legitimate faith can look different from one set of believers to the next. The Holy Spirit works how and where he pleases, but he doesn't really override the personalities of believers. Rather, he uses the personalities of believers. So Paul appears to have had to do maybe a little more convincing for the Thessalonians, while the Bereans almost convinced themselves in a way. But once the Thessalonians grasped the truth, they were resolute, just like the Bereans. Their sincerity and their devotion to the truth, it was put to the test right away. And really, both the Bereans and the Thessalonians, their faith was tested immediately. So the Jews, jealous of the converts that Paul was gaining, they decided, well, we've got to put a stop to this. They were losing members and even seeing important members of their own town believe in the gospel, believe in Christ. And that made them mad. That burned them up. They were losing money, they were losing numbers, and they were losing power. So they do something. So they decided that the best tactic was to run off these missionaries, run off these troublemakers. And we'll look at more of the enemy's reactions in a moment. But notice how the newly converted Thessalonians and Bereans, how they handled the persecution that was brought against them. The believers in both towns who had just believed in Jesus as the Christ, how they stood, how they stood fast when faced with persecution. They had just come to believe, but they didn't cower before the enemy. They didn't give up on their newfound faith. They had barely known the truth for a few days, and yet they had the strength to endure these trials. And then we see that the Holy Spirit was already them, giving them the grace that they needed to endure these trials. In Thessalonica, Jason and some others were abducted by a mob. How would you feel if that happened to you? They were dragged before the authorities and falsely accused of things that could have led to their execution. But God had plans for these men and women still in his church, and so they were fined and let go. The believers had a similar experience. The same mob put together by the Jews of Thessalonica was on its way to do the same thing in Berea as they had done in Thessalonica. But the Bereans found out in time to safely send Paul away before anything too bad could happen. I don't know if you notice this, but it's kind of interesting that they only send Paul away. He was clearly the outspoken preacher and the main leader of the missionary effort. Silas and Timothy, they were still in Berea, but the Thessalonian Jews, they didn't seem to care if they were there too much. As long as Paul's gone, that's all they care about. Well, before we go to the last point, I want to stress one more thing in this point. <clears throat> Once true faith takes hold in the heart of, of the believer, it cannot be destroyed. And we see a good picture of that in this passage. Now, it's true that some believers can walk away for a time, that they can fall into sin. But if they are truly Christ, if they truly belong to him, they will be brought back to repentance 
and faith in time. These new converts in Thessalonica and Berea, they had believed for a couple of days at most. And yet, faced with persecution and possible execution, they stood fast. They had a choice to make when confronted by the threats of the world. They could give up their newfound faith and escape punishment, or they could trust that their Savior would uphold them in life and in death. Now, people are not generally okay with dying for a lie. Paul may have used reason and logic to to present the truth, but that doesn't mean that the truth stops at intellectual assent. Simply knowing the right information will not carry you through a trial, nor is it anything to suffer or die for. But when you find the pearl of greatest price, selling all you have, even if it's your life, is entirely worth the cost. So the question for you is this. What if persecution came to you tomorrow? Now, most of you profess to be Christians, and many of you have believed for many decades. If your faith in Christ is just an exercise in philosophy, then it will crumble in the face of real opposition. If believing for you is about spiritual highs, what will happen when those spiritual highs go away and you're not feeling Christianity anymore? Or if you're a Christian just because your parents, your spouse, your friends, or most of the people around you are, then the moment they are taken away from you, you will fall. If worldly opposition can compromise your faith, then it isn't faith. But if you are a Christian because you love Jesus and you trust in him completely, then no persecution, no trial, and no attack of the devil himself can remove you from the hand of God. If his spirit is dwelling within you, then you have been sealed for the day of glory. Do you believe that truly? Well, don't wait for trials to come to see if your faith is real. Anytime you hear the word of God, he is inviting you to examine your heart and to rest in him. And that is something that the world can never learn to do. All right, let's look at the final point here. That's the world's reaction. So we've already seen that Paul had a method for evangelism. Unfortunately, it isn't just missionaries, though, that have a game plan. The devil and his servants, they have a plan, too. And in this passage, we see very clearly the ways in which the world resists the truth. The techniques of the world to fight against Jesus and his church have not really changed in the 2,000 years since the cross. There, too, the devil thought he would win if he just killed Jesus. But little did he know that the death of the Messiah would bring not his victory, but his defeat. And even after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, that old serpent, he hasn't changed his strategies. He still seeks to use force through persecution and cruelty to attack the church. Apparently, old dogs aren't the only things that can't learn new tricks. Old serpents don't seem to learn either. And notice that the fight begins only after some of these Jews become jealous. These Jews heard the same message as those who believed, but they rejected the message. So why? Well, the truth is offensive to the world. To the Christian, God's word is sweeter than honey, but to the unbeliever, it is a witness against their evil. Jesus said that in John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has... 
And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. These Jews hated Jesus because in Christ they saw that they were justly deserving of hell for their evil. But instead of going to him for mercy and falling at the foot of the cross and trusting in the only Savior, they ran from the truth. And instead they decide to fight the truth. And as if their hatred of the truth was not strong enough, some of their former Jewish compatriots abandoned them in their eyes to choose to believe in this gospel. So they watched former friends believing in something that they hate. Furthermore, they were losing numbers. That meant less money, that meant less power, and that meant less influence for them. So they became jealous as their spiritual father had. Satan became jealous because he wanted to be God himself. So both the devil and his spiritual children condemned themselves through their jealousy and their anger at the truth. So thrown into a rage by their hatred, they pursue tactics to damage the church. And if they can, to destroy the church. So we'll walk through a few steps here that they choose, that they use. Step one was to create chaos. So they began by gathering up idle, worthless men. Anyone who was standing around, anyone who was up to no good, who didn't have a job, they were the man for the job here. So they rounded up whatever worthless and dishonest people they could find and got them to do their bidding. The result in Thessalonica was a full-on mob of angry and violent people which would have been joined by anyone else standing around doing nothing. Well, Luke tells us that this mob was able to get the entire city worked up into an uproar. Can you imagine the entire city of Morganton or Charlotte or Hickory or Boone turning out in an uproar, in a riot, in a mob? And all because of anger and jealousy at the truth? Well, that was step one. Step two was with that mob to then confront preachers. So with the mob of the city behind them, they went to Jason's house where they fully expected Paul and Silas to be. Remember that these Jews would have been at the same synagogue with Jason and the other believers. So they knew where they were at. And so they showed up in front of Jason's house looking to squash this missionary venture. But there's one small problem. Paul and Silas, they weren't there anymore. So whether they were hidden in the house or they had been sent out the back doors, the crowd approached, they couldn't be found. And that, mean, that meant that they needed to then alter their strategy. And notice that in Berea, the Jews didn't even seem to care that Silas and Timothy were still there. Paul, as the primary spokesperson and the apostle, he was the focus of their attacks. Step three was to take whoever they could find before the governing authorities. If they couldn't kill or expel the missionaries themselves, they'd have the government take care of those rabble-rousers. If the force, if force can't solve it, the government surely can, right? I'm sure you've heard that phrase from Reagan. Uh, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah, that was their mindset there. Well, notice that the leaders were not really much help to Jason and the other believers in Thessalonica. Well, step four was to bring accusations against these Christians. So first, in verse six, they said that Paul and his cohort had turned the whole world upside down. What an accusation. And I find it fascinating that they chose to make this accusation. 
So were they trying to exaggerate and make things up or had the spread of the gospel so permeated the area that it actually was turning the world upside down? We know spiritually that the gospel was already truly conquering. But could a group of persecutors really recognize that or were they just trying to make up, come up with some ammunition? Either way, the irony is this accusation was actually true. Well, second, in verse 7, they bring the accusation against the Christians that they were breaking Caesar's laws and calling Jesus a king. And similar to the first accusation, this one's rather ironic because there's some truth to it. These believers, they had broken no laws by following Jesus, but they rightly called Jesus a king. Now, many in the empire, the Roman Empire of the day, they were involved in emperor worship. The emperor was a god to them. So therefore, calling Jesus a king or calling him God definitely meant that Jesus, not Caesar, was God. But we know that God puts every leader in a position of power. They are not there on their own. Therefore, calling Jesus the king and yet living as a good citizen in the empire was not a contradiction, but a paradox. If you don't know the difference, a paradox is something that seems like a contradiction, but it isn't. The Jews knew the truth. Because they understood that God was the true ruler. So the same accusation that they leveled against Christians, guess what? It could be leveled against them. But despite formerly being friends with these Christians, they did what they thought was necessary to bring these believers down. Despite the best efforts of these Jews, their plan only really half worked. They were rid of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. But the authorities just let Jason and the other believers out on bail. They didn't keep them. They didn't beat them. So all were troubled by the accusations brought forward, but by the grace of God, leaders were not ready to hand out severe punishment. So most would think that's the end of it, right? Stops there. Paul and Silas are gone. No more issues. Well, it seems that the Jews of Thessalonica really did believe that these two men were turning the whole world upside down with the gospel. Because they got wind of some more information. When they heard that Paul and Silas had gone to preach in Berea, they sprang into action. I'd say they went the extra mile in this fight, but that's not strictly true. Because they actually went an extra 50 miles to chase these missionaries down. Now that's dedication. And they did all of that to try and stop the spread of the truth. They wanted the church squashed. They wanted it destroyed. But let's stop and consider the results of their Brilliant plans. In their eyes, they probably thought that the plan went great. Paul and Silas had been run out of not one, but two prominent Greek towns. They punished the believers in Thessalonica and they put fear into the ones in Berea. But that's where the good news ends for them. And it really actually wasn't good news for them at all. Because the very things that they thought were their greatest victories were really the declaration of their defeat at the hands of Christ and his gospel. First, in Thessalonica, what they really did was force two missionaries to keep moving elsewhere where they could keep on preaching the gospel to more needy souls. And even Jason and the other converts were not defeated. They didn't abandon their faith. On the contrary, the faith of the Thessalonians was proven real from the very beginning. And there's further proof in the two letters to the Thessalonian church. And really, that church was begun by this first set of believers. So their supposed victory actually helped establish 
and guarantee that the church in Thessalonica would not only survive, but even thrive. Well, how about in Berea? Well, in Berea, the Thessalonian Jews probably also saw victory. We ran off the guy we wanted to run off. But once again, all they did was unite the Berean Christians in the face of a coming attack from the world. The Jews may have thought they succeeded again by driving Paul out. But once again, their understanding of the bigger picture was completely lacking. They reveled in their victory, not knowing that they had ensured their defeat in this battle. Once again, the church that was planted would grow and thrive. And in God's providence, the attacks of these Jews simply drove Paul on to Athens for his next mission assignment. That leads me to think that so often we think about the church and we consider that it is barely surviving or that it's losing in this world, that the culture is winning. But the truth is that if we are clinging to the word, and we are preaching it clearly and with conviction, then God will be at work. So what looks like defeat and shame in the eyes of the world is often the very means by which God does mighty things through his church. The persecution of the church is not a sign of its failure. The world loves to attack Christ's church using strength, shame, and mockery to stop the growth of the church. But God turns their weapons to our favor. The great victory of driving the missionaries out of town just pushed them to another town where they could preach the gospel to more people in need of salvation. The persecution of Jason and the other believers in Thessalonica and Berea just made them more resolute and ready to live for Christ. Understand there's no weapon of this world. There's no weapon that the devil has that can stop or slow the spread of God's word. And the harder that he attacks, the harder he presses into the church, the more often God uses that to spread the growth of the church. So what does that mean for you as a Christian now? Did you notice that there were no miracles or extraordinary events that took place in this passage? God was at work through the ordinary means of grace. He sent men to preach and proclaim his word. He applied that word to the hearts of the hearers by the power of his Holy Spirit. And in his providence, he ordained everything about the situation, both in Thessalonica and in Berea, so that his church would be established and his name would be glorified. Brothers and sisters, things do not work any differently today than they did back in this passage. Because God is still at work. He's still building up his church Across this world, the scripture is still the life giving word of truth that the Holy Spirit applies in the hearts of the lost to bring them to faith. There's not one single weapon that the enemy possesses that can hinder God's plan. The devil throws everything he can at the church, fighting viciously to destroy it. But at the end of the day, he's just a pawn in the hands of God. Because everything the world does to try to stop the church ultimately fails because God is in control, not them. And more often than not, it is those attacks that God uses to help grow his church. And if the Lord's plan is to work through you to save souls and to grow his church, no one can stop that plan. 
Let's take a moment and turn over to Romans 8. So Romans 8, and I'll read from verses 31 to 39. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He was to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died more than that. He was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ marches on through you. Because no matter how hard the world resists or attacks you, you are already a conqueror through Jesus Christ. No one and nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ. That is a resolute hope. And at the end of the day, that's the hope of the gospel. And that's the hope that we're charged to carry forth to the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us of your word, that you have laid that word on our hearts, that you have called us to salvation in Christ, that you have called us conquerors through Christ, and that you don't set us aside and say, here, wait, but you give us a duty in this world. We are called to be emissaries, ambassadors for the gospel. So Lord, help us to go forth and to preach and proclaim your word boldly to whoever you bring across our paths. And help us to trust and rely and rest in you when we don't understand what the plan is. When there's persecution or difficulty or sickness or trial and we don't understand what's going on. And yet, Lord, help us to trust in your plan for we know that you have one. We know that you are sovereignly working out all things for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, let us rest in that and let us rejoice in that. Be with us, we pray. In Christ's name.